A reading from Luke 6, verses 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the floods arose, the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the streams broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jonathan. If you have been with us over the last several weeks, we have been uh, working our way through this series uh, of the questions that Jesus asked. And the reason we do that is because if you look at the historical accounts of Jesus, the way that he interacted with uh, the people in his life, those he taught, those who approached him as strangers, he, he makes use of these poignant questions. Over and over and over again, people come to him with their assumptions of life, with their desires, with their commitments. And Jesus, Jesus has a way of using questions that, that cut right to the heart of the matter, questions that, that uh, challenge the status quo, questions that can tear down uh, a worldview, and, and questions that can bring encouragement and hope in, in places least expected. And so today we come to a question, uh, the question you see here in verse 46, where Jesus asks this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? All God's people said, oof, oof. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me master? Why do you call me king? Why do you call me savior? And then turn around and, and not do the very things that I taught you, not do the very commandments that I gave you. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what is good? If you're here this morning and you grew up in any sort of moralistic home, whether religious or irreligious, Christian or otherwise, the kind of home that had you know, moral absolutes, that operated in some way on shame and honor, right, wrong, good, and evil, a question like that can be like a, a, a gut punch, a sucker punch, one that makes the, you know, the shame uh, instinct in you start to rise. It starts to feel like Jesus is trying to put a spotlight on you and, and all your failures and all the ways that you haven't lived up to expectations. But what if Jesus is asking the question for a different reason? What if Jesus doesn't want to publicly humiliate you? But what about if Jesus is not turning a spotlight on you to shame you, but giving you a flashlight so that you could see yourself clearly? That you could examine into the depths, the, the basement of your life, as it were, and see what has gone wrong. Because the question that he asks, why do you call me Lord and I do what I say, we could, we could even uh, generalize it for those of us who, who aren't even believers and say, why do you say that this thing is a value and then not follow through on it? Why do you do the things that you say? Why don't you do the things that you say are good? 
it's a reality that can be really disorienting from us. A couple years ago, there was a, a limited run podcast series that came out called Nice White Parents, which is an intriguing and, and fascinating uh, podcast series that I would encourage everyone to listen to uh, because it deals with, with a lot of interesting and, and serious things in our society. But uh, the, 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 the premise or the gripping story of the podcast, one of the animating principles, is, is the story of this group of uh, parents, nice white parents, as you can tell, who, who lived in Brooklyn in the height of the civil rights movement, who in 1963 began a campaign, a, a, a push with the school board in New York City to open a school that uh, their children could attend, a middle school that their children could go to, and they wanted this, this school built right on the, the fringes of a neighborhood, between a, a neighborhood that was predominantly housing projects and uh, kids of color and, and lower socioeconomic class, and a neighborhood that was much more affluent, much more, uh, much more white. And in these letters, these parents pour out how much they value diversity as a value for their children, that it is essential for them as parents that they have a school where their children can go to school with people not like them. Some of them say that they moved from the suburbs into the city for the express purpose that they could send their kids to school uh, with kids from every nationality and every income group. IS-293 was to be this beacon of educational hope. And yet five years later, when the middle school actually opened, in the spot that those parents wanted the school to be opened at, not a single one of those parents sent their kids to the school that they wanted. Not a single one of the parents did so. And as, uh, you know, in the podcast, she goes and she tracks down these folks now uh, now a little bit older um, kid, parents and, and asking, what happened? What happened? Because you said you valued this. You said diversity in education was essential to, to how you wanted to parent. And yet when it came time to, to send, uh, you know, little Mary to middle school, you looked at that option and you said, yeah, never mind. Maybe we'll go a different direction. What you said was good and right for you, what you said was good and right for our city, is something that you weren't able to follow through with. Interviewer finds uh, one of these um, ladies, and, and she asks her this question. She puts, the interviewer puts it in front of, of this lady, and she says, why did you not send your kids is it that you, by the time they got to middle school, you believed less in uh, diversity and inclusion? Or was it something else? And the lady was like, no, 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 no. I very much believe, I still believe that diversity is essential in education. But as she talks, you start to hear her voice start to break a little bit. Because she's starting to see the discrepancy between the kind of parent and person that she wants to believe that she is and the kind of parent's parental choices that she actually made. 
In other words, she couldn't live up to even her own expectations for herself. And so the question that Jesus asked, why do you not follow through on what you say is good? Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say is actually a question that we're really interested in too. Why can't we live up to our own expectations? The Apostle Paul once said, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So when Jesus asks us this question, uh, I think it's, it's very helpful for us. Very helpful because I think he highlights in this little section some profound truths profound truths that, that can shape how we conceive of ourselves and how we occupy this world. And I think he provides us two answers to his own question. Why do you not do the good that you say is good? Well, number one, because we can't. Because we can't. He tells a story of two different houses, uh, two houses that have very different outcomes, right? One is not able to be shaken, and one, it says that the ruin of that house was very great. But before we can talk about what's different about these houses, we've got to talk about what's the same between these houses. And that's this, that neither house has the internal strength to withstand the pressures of the flood, Neither house on its own is able to support the flood. And you go, wait a minute, you just said that one of the houses makes it through the flood. So what's the difference? You know, we, uh, the difference between the houses in this text is not that they were built out of different materials, right? There's not one made out of brick, one made out of twigs, and one made out of straw, right? The difference between them is, is not the composition of the house, it's not the size. It doesn't say anything about the size of the house. It doesn't say anything about the. Um, it doesn't say anything about the, the the framing, right? At one level, it doesn't even say anything about the quality of of the builder of the house. The difference between those houses is where the house sits. The rock that one sits protects it from the floods, and the lack of rock on the other destroys it. The logic of it is, is that you could pick up those houses, and if you took the house on the rock and you set it on a ground where there is no foundation, when the flood waters rise, it will cripple and fall. Because houses are not made. They are not designed to have strength in themselves. They are not built to withhold the pressures of a flood by themselves. They need strength from the outside. And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows it. It's interesting that this uh, section comes at the end of a sermon, a sermon that is filled with all sorts of challenging, unique, confusing, beautiful, moral attributes that Jesus teaches his followers. And it's almost like before he finishes the sermon, before they've even tried to go out and, and do all the things he told them to do, he goes, but here's the deal, you're not going to do it right? We already know the way that this story ends. And we know the way that this story ends because it's impossible. I'll tell you an example, just one, one little snippet, right, from the sermon he, he preaches. He says this in verse 27 of, of chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, 
love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. It's funny that we're, we, we've heard those words so often that we actually kind of somehow deep down believe that that's like a good teaching, that we like it. But have you ever tried it? Have you ever tried it? There's a story uh, that was in, the, uh, in a column a few weeks ago that I came across a story of the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who also lived in the civil rights era, but he lived not in New York City, but in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth knew a few things about having enemies. His church, his congregation had three different bombing attempts uh, on uh, Christmas Eve, early in the morning on Christmas Day, somewhere in there, his, uh, his family was subjected to a bomb detonating in their basement of their parsonage. In the fall, September of 1957, he took his two children to uh, Phillips High School in Birmingham to enroll them in class. And what they found when they got there was a mob of people with baseball bats, brass knuckles, and chains. Uh, hours later, when he was uh, interviewed by a reporter in the hospital from the wounds he sustained that day, they said, what are you, what are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish here? And he says, for the day when the man who beat me and my family with chains at Phillips High School can sit down with us as a friend. That is a remarkably ridiculous Statement. It's remarkably impossible. Now, we like the idea of this nonviolent protest. We, like the, we say we like the idea of love your enemies. A couple weeks ago, Matt even quoted Elon Musk saying something along those lines. But do we? Do we? Because love your enemies doesn't just mean that you don't hit back. It doesn't mean that you just withhold your vengeance from them. Loving your enemies means that you proactively seek their good. That even in the midst of their onslaught against you, you desire for them something better. You notice his words. He doesn't just say that my family could be free from these people. He says, I want them to experience what true friendship and true forgiveness could taste like. His desire for his enemies is astounding and it's confusing and it's impossible. Have you ever been punched? I've certainly never experienced anything like what he did, but I've, I've had a kid punch me on the playground before, and I can tell you the response to that does not feel like a choice. Your response to, to being sucker punched feels like instinct. It, it feels like it's, it's physiologically driven. To the, the instinct to fight back or the instinct to run away comes from someplace deeper within you than you even care to take a look. When Jesus says, uh, talks about this hypothetical assailant, the one who strikes you on the cheek, he says, love them. Be concerned about what is good for them. 
which sounds all nice and pretty until you consider that the, the, that hypothetical assailant is that person prowling about your neighborhood, right? The one that's stalking in the parking lot. The one that makes your anxiety go to a thousand and haunts your imagination and fills you with fear. And Jesus says, love them, pray for them, consider what is good for them. And immediately you begin to realize that what Jesus is commanding these people to do is, is utterly impossible. In fact, it may be downright offensive to you. What Jesus is commanding them to do in this sermon is not something that they have the strength to do on their own. There may not even be something that they want to pretend like they have. So Jesus says, when you look at your failure to live, not just to Jesus' expectations, but when you look at your failure to live even up to your own expectations, recognize that what you are experiencing is true of the human condition apart from Christ. A house, our constitution, the way that God made our bodies is we are not made to, 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 to operate on uh, resolve. We're not made to, to hear a commandment and rely on our strength. Advice like try harder, be better. They're utterly futile against us because we don't have the strength within ourselves to survive the floodwaters of this life. But if you are a person who's grown disillusioned with yourself, if in the wake of the floodwaters your whole house or some uh, aspect of your house is crippled to the ground, then there is hope because Jesus tells us that there is a different way of being human. There's a different life that can be lived, one that is based not on your own strength, but on the strength of the rock of Jesus. Which brings us to our second point. That we don't obey, that we don't do what we think is good because we've built our lives on something else. Notice Jesus preaches a sermon to people who are listening to a sermon, right? To people who call him Lord, Lord. To people who are like you and I coming and saying, God, we want what you have for us. We want to hear your teaching. We want to be shaped and conformed by you. And yet, our lives are filled consistently, habitually with ways that we do the exact opposite of what he teaches any one of us could be on that podcast and there'd be any number, a thousand different things that they could say, wait, but you say that, that this is good, but you go a different way. The life that you actually live is completely contrary to the life that you profess. Jesus' question, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say, is a question that is intended to make us pause. It's a question that's intended to make us reflect what is going on beneath the surface? Because we know that a house, a life built upon the rock, built upon the strength of Jesus is one that, that does not continue in that path. So what are we to make of it? 
It's meant to draw us to, to a self-realization. It's meant to draw us to confession. Because if you have chosen to build your life, at least, or at least some aspect on it, on something that is other than Jesus. Let me play out what this might look like. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to use uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth as our, as our hypothetical, right? Reverend Shuttlesworth's life, we, you, could, um, you could easily see him building a life that was distinctly uh, Christian-looking, right? He could build a life that, that was filled with um, a campaign for equality and justice, and it would look distinctly Christian because God is a God of justice. He cares deeply uh, for those who are marginalized. He cares deeply for those who are afflicted. He cares deeply for those who are abused. And so he could form a whole life, a, a, a life that, uh, that looks very good and moral. But do you know what he's not able to do? He's not able to when the when the flood waters ro- ro- when the flood waters roll down, right? When the chains come out, he's not able to put on the life of Christ on a whim. When the waters come down, when the flood waters rise, what's inside of him? The the the, the foundation of his house comes to light. And so if he's built that house on a commitment to equality and justice, most of the time it can look great and could be applauded and we could celebrate him for his prophetic speech. But when he takes a punch to the chin, what comes out of a commitment of justice is revenge, right? What comes out of a commitment to justice is, is a desire to make those abusers pay for what they did. That's what justice is. It's an eye for an eye. It's a tooth for a tooth. And so while maybe he wouldn't go full like vigilante on these people, he most assuredly would use other more subtle ways of dragging them in the mud, right? Of thinking of them as unredeemable, of dismissing them as toxic, as condemning them for being unsafe. In fact, he could defend really any measure of harm as he grew in bitterness, mocking, slander, hate, because, quite frankly, they deserve it, don't they? And all of a sudden, you begin to see a life drawn out of a commitment to justice, a commitment to justice without Jesus that looks... Well, it looks pretty unchristian, doesn't it? Because the story of the Christian faith is that God's justice finds its fulfillment in mercy. The story of the Christian faith, the story that Jesus is teaching his disciples is is that those who have done you grievous wrong can have their sins atoned for by the blood of Jesus. And if that hypothetical Shuttlesworth ever existed, you would begin to see the house that looked so Christian at the beginning, and wouldn't it? Because we have a God who is, who is committed, the picture of where he's taking the world, and he says, it's going to be like a, a wolf, you know, the lion can lay down with the lamb, right? That, the, that the, the, the weapons of warfare can be turned into farming vessels, that there could be peace, that there could be safety in 
him. And he could orient his whole life around protecting his family from, from those who would seek to do him harm. That he could build his whole life uh, uh, and have verses to prove it around peace and safety. But, how's, but a life that is built on the idea, on a commitment to the idea of safety without Jesus, what does it do when the bomb goes off, when the flood waters push against the house? A commitment to safety runs, moves to some deserted island where such people don't exist. But if he runs to some island on a different continent that speaks a different language, how will he fulfill what Jesus has asked him to love his enemy, to seek good for those who intend him harm? A house that is built on a, on a Christian virtue and not on the Christ will come crumbling down when the floodwaters rush. And we could do it with a hundred other different values, but the, the, the point is, is that when you see failure in your life, when you see inconsistency in your life, when you see that you aren't even able to live up to your own expectations, the invitation of Jesus is to look deeper. Because you've probably built some aspect of your life, or maybe, in fact, you've built your whole identity on, on a good thing, that washes away in the flood, commitments that, that cannot withstand the force of this life. When illness and disappointment, when suffering come along, they get shown for what they really are, places that have no hope, homes that have no future. So if that's you this morning, if that's me this morning reflecting on a life that is inconsistent at best and utterly, um, and utterly disastrous at worst, what do we do? What do we do when we see our failures? What do we, see when we, what do, we do when we see our weakness? Uh, a couple years ago, uh, during the height of the pandemic, those of us with small children were, you know, grasping at straws for how to survive, right? And uh, survival mechanism 101 came in the form of one of those cheap uh, backyard pools, right? You've seen these, like, they have a big inflatable ring on them. They're like 10, 12 feet wide, two or three feet deep, right? This is the way that, like, when you couldn't leave the house, you could be like... Go to the pool, right, for, for those of us too poor for an actual pool. Um, and when I got this uh, pool, I was very excited about it, brought it home, set it up. And as you begin to open the box, you see, like, over and over again, it says, uh, only use on level ground. You know, instructions for step one, level the ground that you place this pool on, Right? And the, obvious, the point is obvious, right? Because the, the pool needs a foundation. It needs to rest on something that is stronger than itself. If you want that pool to do what it's designed to do, then you need to provide it a level ground, a, a foundation to sit on. But just like in normal life, right? The, 
That seemed like a lot of work. <laughs> it seemed like, uh, you know, you got kids like, hey, can we put a water in it yet? Can we put water in it yet? And so I, you know, I quickly, uh, you know, level, dug off the high ground of, of the, the place where I was sitting in, and I was like, ah, it's good enough, right? It's good enough. You know what happens, right? 24 hours later, you start to hear this sound of, of rushing water coming out the back door. The, the weight of the water, because the ground was not level, was pushing against one wall of the pool, and, and slowly the whole pool started to like roll over, and water was dumping out one side of the pool. And in some ways, that's like us. When we see our failures, when we see that we can't live up to our expectation, we have a choice. Do we try to ignore it? Do we try to pretend like it's not there? Do we just turn on the hose and say, eh, it's good enough? Or does the rushing water make us pause? Does the wash, rushing water give us reason to, to take a hard look at our lives and say, maybe, just maybe, what I need to do is I need to, to take the water out of this pool. Maybe, just maybe, what I need to do is, is to, to do the work of examining my heart and my life, of digging out this level ground, of finding a secure place for the pool. Because I wanted my kids to enjoy the pool. I wanted the pool to operate the way that it was designed to. When Jesus asks us, why do you call me Lord and not do what I command? There's a way that we hear it and we feel like, oh, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. But we are like that pool. We are not supposed to to be able to hold the water in on our own. Instead, we are to find the foundation of Jesus. So I hope as you hear Jesus' words this morning, I hope what you don't hear is me saying, you're not trying hard enough. I hope you don't hear me saying, do better. I hope you don't hear me saying, be better. I hope what you hear is an invitation of Jesus, an invitation that says, I desire to be with you. I desire to, 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 to give you the strength and the resources to live the life that I have designed for you. When you feel exposed by the floodwaters, don't run away in fear because this is a home for people who fail me. This is a home for people who are failed by others because there is a rock. There is salvation. Psalm 103 is one of my, my favorite psalms. And it has this phrase in it that I just love as it talks about Jesus, as it talks about redemption, as it talks about hope. It says, God has compassion on us like a father has compassion on a child because he knows our frame. And he remembers that we are dust. As you sit here this morning in your failures, know that your God knows your frame. He knows that you are not able to do what you say you're going to do. 
and he knows that you have, have built your life on premises that are utterly worthless. That's why he sent Jesus to deliver those who don't do the good that they say they're going to do. Apostle Paul concluded the same thing. He said, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So when he reflects, he says, what a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? The answer, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our hope this morning as well. Father, we come to you as people who cannot and will not live the life that you have commanded. As people who uh, cannot figure out what we are supposed to do and, and aren't strong enough to do even those things that we think we ought to do. And so, Father, I pray that you would set us on the rock, that you would turn uh, our attention to those vain and, and, and worthless idols that we base our lives on, and would you give us Jesus in their place? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.